Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. We pick back up in verse 3, 3 and 4. Israel, which is Jacob, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the child of his old age. And he made him an elaborately embroidered coat. When his brothers realized that their father loved him more than them, they grew to hate him. They wouldn't even speak to him. Now, we don't know what the coat looked like. I mean, you've heard the coat of many colors. It's probably not actually accurate. Um, it, it likely was a, a coat that had long sleeves, uh, very decorative. It, this is not the coat of a worker. This is the coat of management. So, uh, so, so Jacob basically gives Joseph a coat and, and, and makes him a little prince, a little foreman on the job. Singles him out and sets him to the side. And we see this bitter root of envy that's probably been there for a long time start to, start to emerge in the, lives, in the lives of his brothers. Goes on, Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, I don't know that Joseph had a lot of self-awareness. <laughs> they hated him even more. He said, listen to this dream I had, guys, where we're all in the field gathering bundles of wheat on all of a sudden my bundle stood straight up and your bundles circled around it and bowed down to mine. Isn't that great? (laughs) And they hated him more than ever because of his dreams and the way that he talked. It is not hard to imagine his brothers saying to themselves and to one another, who does this twerp think he is? Like, If he doesn't shut his mouth, I'm going to shut it for him. This is human experience. Am I I right? This is real real stuff. It goes on and he says, he had another dream. Go good, good. I'm glad glad he had another dream. And he told this one to his brothers also, I dreamed another dream. The sun and the moon, the 11 stars, they bowed down to me. When he told it to his father this time and his brothers, his father reprimanded him and said, what's with all this dreaming? Am I and your mother and your brothers all supposed to bow down to you? Now his brothers were really jealous, but his father brooded over the whole business. Now, it's important to know that dreams in that day were considered divine, especially when they came in twos. Especially when they came in twos. So we see something here for the first time in in Jacob's brothers is jealousy. Jealousy is different than envy, and we're going to talk about that. It's rooted in fear, a fear of loss. Here, God is somehow sanctioning, perhaps, that Joseph will will rise to this position. So we pick back up in verse 12 and 13. His brothers had gone off to Shechem, where they were pasturing their father's flocks. Israel said to Joseph, your brothers are with the flocks in Shechem. Come, I want to send you to them. Joseph said, I'm ready. (laughs) He said, Go and see how your, how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring me back a report, little foreman. So Joseph leaves to look for his brothers and discovers that they had moved to a different area. They spot him, they, they spot him off in the distance, okay? Picking up in verse 18. They spot him off in the distance, his brothers, but by the time that Joseph gets to them, they had cooked up a plot to kill him. The brothers were saying, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him. Throw him into one of those old cisterns. We can say that the vicious animals ate him up. We'll see what his dreams amount to then. 
Reuben heard the brothers talking and intervened to save him. We're not going to kill him. No murder. Go ahead, throw him in the cistern out here in the wild, but don't, don't hurt him. Reuben had planned on going back later to get him out and take him back to his father. Now, Reuben was on his dad's bad side because he actually slept with a concubine of Jacob's. And Reuben was the oldest son, so he would have been held responsible if anything had happened to, 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 uh, to Joseph. When Joseph reached his brothers, they ripped off his fancy coat he was wearing. They grabbed him violently, and they threw him into a cistern. The cistern was dry. There wasn't any water in it. Then they sat down to eat their supper. Okay, from this point, we hear no more verbally from Joseph in the story. But we know from later in the account that Joseph was crying out, crying out and begging them not to not do this. It's later in the account in Genesis. So can you imagine, just picture this. You've thrown your brother in a pit, and now you're sitting down to eat. And he in the background is, no, don't do this. Please, please, please don't do this. Please, Reuben, Simeon, Judah, please. What's for dinner? Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites on their way from Gilead. Their camels loaded with spices, ointments, perfumes to sell to Egypt. Judah said, brothers, what are we going to get out of killing our brother and concealing this evidence? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, but let's not kill him. He is, after all, our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. And by that time, the Midianite traders were passing by. His brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took Joseph with them down to Egypt. Later, Reuben came back and went to the cistern. No, Joseph. He ripped his clothes in despair. Beside himself, he went to his brothers. The boy is gone. What am I going to do? They took Joseph's coat. They butchered a goat and they dipped the coat in the blood. They took that fancy coat back to their father and said, we found this. Look, look it over. Uh, do you think that it's perhaps your son's? <laughs> he recognized it at once, and Jacob says, my son's coat, a wild animal has eaten him. Joseph, torn limb from limb. The sins of the father have returned. This is the man who, who, this is the man who deceived his father, and now his own sons are deceiving him. Jacob tore his clothes in grief, dressed in rough burlap, and mourned his son a long, long time. His sons and daughters, they tried to comfort him, but he refused their comfort. I will go down to the grave mourning my son. Oh, how his father wept for him. In Egypt, the Midianites sold Joseph to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, manager of his household affairs. This is the word of the Lord. So in this story, in this story, we have the damaging effects of playing favorites, the corrosion of envy, the sting of jealousy, and an oblivious and mildly annoying teacher's pet. What in the world can we learn from this craziness? This is a crazy story, right? I mean, like, literally, this, the Old Testament is nuts. There's a lot of crazy things that are happening. What can we, there's a lot that we can learn. There's a lot that we can draw out from this story. But I really only want to focus us this morning on one important thing. We're going to look at how envy creeps into our lives how it and how it ultimately the gospel grounds us in the security of God's love and reassurance of our position before him. So what is envy? So if we're going to talk about envy, we should probably define our terms. Envy is the desire for what someone else has that we don't. 
Envy is the desire for what someone else has that we don't, or we think we don't. That's actually an important distinction. We don't see it, we don't see clearly all the time. It's a consuming and a possessive sin. It seeks to possess. It's never good. It's, it's never good. That's different than jealousy, by the way. People often will interchangeably use those two, those two words, envy and jealousy. Jealousy is different, and it's actually a more complex thing. We don't have time to totally get into, into it, but jealousy has to do with more of fear, fear of losing something I already have. So when Jacob's, when Jacob's um, sons were jealous, they were jealous, they were fearful, they would lose their inheritance. So they're envious over the father's affection and love in his position, but jealous because of what they might lose. Get the, get the difference? Both concepts are really important. Both show up in the story, but I want us to focus on envy. This possession, this idea of wanting something, it can be anything. People, it can be status, relationships, kids, career, admiration, praise, Instagram profile, you name it. It can be anything, anything at all. In our passage, we see that the children of Israel were envious for Jacob's love, and they envied Joseph who had it. So, first point about this is that favoritism fuels envy. Israel loved, quote-unquote, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now, let's just say up front, favoritism is not abnormal, okay? We're finite people. We have our own perspectives and opinions and personalities and and I mean, in many ways, it's how friendship works, right? I mean, you, you grow comfortable with people and you, uh, you end up favoring them. It's not completely out of the realm of, of normality. It's just part of how it works. However, when a parent, when a mother or a father plays favorites, especially overtly, especially overtly, man, like Jacob did, it can be particularly devastating. It's because your parents are, are really the first people that image God. You know, they represent, they represent who God should be and, 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 and could be. And obviously, we all fail. We all fall short of that. And part of what we do day in and day out as believers is coming back and God trying to reconvince us that he is good, he is kind, and he's not like those people that raised us, even if they were really wonderful people, Right? So Jacob's favoritism, Jacob's favoritism really has been devastating. We see the effects of it. A robe of distinction. He gives Joseph this robe of distinction. And what does that, what does that do? It sets him apart. It divides him. You're over here. You're special. I love you. He didn't run around saying, I don't love you very much. He might as well have to the, to the, to the other kids because what was communicated, what was communicated kind of in a backhanded uh, action was, you're not as special to me, right? Here's the deal, though. You may not, you may may or may not identify with this reality of favoritism, whether you were the favorite or you weren't favorited. You know, may, maybe you came from a really wonderful family that did a great job of that, and that's t- that's awesome. But you don't have to identify with either of these characters to still deal with envy. <laughs> um, Envy is far more, far more sidious. You don't just have to deal with favoritism. I would suggest to you, I would suggest to you that envying and coveting what someone else has is tied to the original, original sin. <laughs> the original false belief, the original false belief that's under all sin. The, the, the idea that God is withholding from you. 
and you can't trust him. Listen, church, I'm going to tell you, this is the, this is the foundation of all sin. This is it. You cannot trust God's character. He's withholding from you. I mean, uh, how many of us recognize the voice of the serpent who says, you see, the, you, you know, God gave them a house. Not you. Hmm, I wonder what that means. Um, you know, I don't think God probably cares about you. You know, you, you haven't figured out this whole career thing and things are kind of a mess. And I don't think if God really loved you, he'd be a lot more clear about it, wouldn't he? Or, uh, he's six foot four. How tall are you? <laughs> Listen, the reality is that we have all heard these accusations masked as questions between our ears. They are accusations masked as questions, and they are attacking the character of our Father. The Bible tells us that we cannot be ignorant of the schemes of the evil one. So let's take a little bit of a closer look at this idea of envy. Envy has a pattern and it has a progression. Three things. It will do three things if it's not confronted with the gospel and healed. It will do three things to us. It will get planted in the soul and it will mix with anger. It will distort reality by turning into resentment or hopelessness. And it will ultimately breed contempt for yourself or for others. Let's look at the first one. Envy is planted in the soul and it mixes with anger. Envy, it starts off small. It, but that, it doesn't stay there. It's not passive. It will grow. James tells us, after desire, and by the way, envy is a desire for something, clutching, grabbing a desire. James tells us that after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. It will not stay put. We see this in Joseph's brothers completely. This isn't recorded in the text, so taking a little bit of creative liberty, but it's really not hard to imagine the small experiences over the years of subtle neglect, living with a vague sense that dad doesn't really love me, seeing how happy Jacob was when Rachel finally got pregnant, and seeing, seeing their father beam from ear to ear when Joseph was born. It's also not hard for me to imagine Simeon or Judah or one of the boys walking by, seeing jo Jacob working on this coat and saying, Dad, what's that? Oh, it's, it's nothing. It's just the coat for Joseph. Figures. Figures. Small, small slights. They mix with anger. And, and anger is not necessarily a bad thing. It's an emotion that God has given us, but there is a dangerous thing with anger. As our own Tom Sappington has, has said in, in his book, is that anger is always self-righteous. You're, you're always right when you're angry because you've been offended. You've been hurt. Your perspective is up here. I've been wronged. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. You don't see things clearly. None of us see things completely clearly. Hebrews Chapter 4, verse 13 basically tells us that God's the only one who sees all things clearly. He says, And before him no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. God's the only one who sees things completely clearly. When we're angry, we think we see clearly. 
And that can lead us to make judgments that are rooted in our hurts. Not rooted in grace and truth, but rooted in our hurts. It's very normal. It's, it, it's, we all do this. But these judgments provide the enemy with a foothold into our lives. And it can blind us, can further blind us. And that leads us to the second thing that envy will do is that it will distort your reality. It will distort reality, turning into resentment or hopelessness. Well, now, what do I mean by that? So your world will start to wrap around this hurt, this idea, this thing that happened to you. And how could this be? You start to think that this is the way that things really are. You know, this happens in work. It happens. It hurt happens everywhere. I mean, you might find yourself, I don't know, on the 91 freeway on the, home, on the way home from work and rehearsing something that happened during the day and having an imaginary argument with three people that just didn't quite understand your point of view when they slighted you. And you're, you're, you know, you're having this amazing lawyer moment with these people that are not in your car. <laughs> I don't know anything about that, by the way. <laughs> so these imaginary, if you're having imaginary arguments with people or real arguments with imaginary people, maybe better, better put, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good indication that maybe you're dealing with some resentment that's rooted in hurt that you can take to your father. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. The other thing is if you find yourself saying always and never in marriage and friendships at work, that's also a pretty good indication that you're making a declarative judgment that is probably a good indication that there's something going on inside of you that God would want to help you with. The distortion can seem, can, uh, you know, this idea of resentment, it can, can be like Jake, uh, uh, Joseph's brothers, where it says, here comes that dreamer. He's no longer Joseph. He's labeled. He's got a label. It's easy to kill a label. It's a lot, easy, a lot harder to kill Joseph. He's no longer human. So it can look like anger and love, or, or for some of us, it can look like hopelessness where you throw your hands up and you say, why bother? Why, why even bother? Why am, I, why am I trying this hard? The reality is we do care. You do care. And, and you ruminate on this point, and there's frustration that circles around it. It's that sin behind the sin again. God can't be trusted, swirling deep in your being that needs to be dealt with. Psalm 73, the writer Asaph provides a really clear picture of this. It's really helpful. It's a he eventually comes around and realizes who God is at the, the end of the psalm. But there's, this, there's this, this part. He says, the beginning, truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Asaph, Psalm 73. I remember the first year that I moved to California. Um, I had literally, Nisha, I had literally like left everything that I knew for the second time. Uh, moved to California across the country because Jesus asked me to. I went back to school. I kind of had quit my actual first career job. My parents were so frustrated with me. 
I had gone through college. I was in my job. I was working it, and God says, go to Bible college. And I quit, and I moved across the country, and I, I, I enrolled and started doing freelance graphic design work as a, as a trade. And, and uh, this, was the, uh, this was the early 2000s, 2002. Um, there was no social media. <laughs> I had just gotten my first cell phone for Pete's sakes. I mean, like, I'm ancient. So the idea that there was no way for me to promote my business. I, was comp- I really was very, very dependent on God providing word of mouth. And the reality is well, I literally was not making it. I was not making it. It was a really hard move for me. Um, it, it was really, really difficult. I had this friend back, back, uh, from, from where I moved from. He would call me often. And, um, you know, super successful guy. And he always, he was always talking like a really big game. Like, hey, I've got this thing. You know, we just closed this deal. We're going to need all new branding help for it. It's going to be amazing. I want you to do it. It's like ground floor. It's going to be next level. Uh, you know, are, are you in? I want you to do it. Can you do it? I'm like, I'm like, I'm barely eating ramen. I'm like, yes, yes, I'm in. That sounds amazing. And start dreaming about what this is going to be like to actually be able to pay my bills and pay my roommate back who had, who, his, who is like a brother to me. And when I tell you, I owed him like a thousand dollars, this guy. Uh, I'm like, I can start paying him back. And, but it would never materialize into anything. And he called me often. And I would always get myself worked back up, kind of believing that it was going to turn into something. And it would never turn into anything. And I just started to resent, not only resent him, I mean, but, but, but grow kind of frustrated at myself for responding that way. And, and, and I, you know, here he was, he's this 26-year-old MBA, you know, uh, really successful um, in a family business, heir to a fortune, drives a nice truck, just got married to a pretty wife. And here I am sitting in my dingy little apartment in West Covina, California, where right across the hall, my neighbor got busted for a meth lab. I'm broke. I have no car. I owe my roommate $1,000, and I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent this month, let alone finish my systematic theology homework. I started to resent him playing with me. But more than that, I grew hopeless, and I started to despise myself. I don't think I would have said it like that. And that leads us to the third thing that envy will do if it's not dealt with. It turns into contempt for yourself or for others. I was angry that he wouldn't follow through, so I started thinking things like this. God, why did you bring me to California to die? (laughs) I wouldn't have said that, but that sounds familiar, right? I I know a whole group of people that said that after Egypt. (laughs) I was growing angry with myself. And I would, I would say, I would, I would think things like this. I'm just no good with money. I'm just no good at this. Uh, life is always going to be a wreck. Like I'm just destined to struggle like this. This is my lot. Jesus asked me to go to Bible college. I guess I'm just, this is just it. I, I'm, I can't pull my stuff together. I can't figure this out. Those were the thoughts. Those were these final thoughts. These big statements over, over, over my life that I had no business declaring over myself. God's the only one who, who gets to judge in, in that regard. It's never, your story is never done until it's done, right? We worship a God of resurrection. Or we, we worship a God who spoke things into existence. <laughs> your story is not done until it's done. 
But I was dealing with this idea of contempt. Contempt, man, is dangerous. The dictionary definition of contempt, which would be on the screen, is the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless, deserving scorn. We will treat others that way, but you will also at times, depending on your disposition, treat yourself the same way. And I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, God loves you. Jesus died for you. None of us have a right to feel that way about ourselves. He paid a major price that we not feel that way about ourselves. This is why community is absolutely important for us. I remember having a phone call in the midst of feeling like this. I remember having this phone call with this friend of mine who also knew this other guy, right, that, that, would, that would call me regularly. And I just realized after, after this call, which I'll tell you about in a minute, is that we are really forgetful and we do not see the long view very well, right? I forget what's back here and I can't see very far that way. But right here, I sure will make huge statements of absolute reality over myself and my situation. Ugh. This friend of mine challenged me. He stopped me. I was ranting to him and complaining and just, like, and, and he, didn't, he didn't do this uh, harshly, but he, he paused and he said, like, Sean, God is going to be faithful to you. He has already been faithful to you. You have a sincere faith. You're right where God wants you to be. Have you forgotten that? He will provide for you. I'm telling you right now, he will provide for you. And you will look back and you will see his hand. And I'm here to tell you, I have, I have. It's not that everything worked out the way that I wanted it to. We'll talk about that in a second. But I can see God's faithfulness. We don't have a great, we don't have a great rear view mirror skill, and we sure don't have a great telescope. I was looking at the wrong things. I was looking at the wrong things. Psalm 103 says to us, a forgetful people, by the way, why do you think the Bible tells us to remember so much? <laughs> Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity. All. Who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good as long as you live so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The practice of remembering and gratitude is a huge antidote to envy. It's a huge antidote to envy, and it often will come through in community. When you are isolated, envy will take you out. I had no idea what God had in store for me. The reality is none of us know. None of us know what God has in store. Uh, none of us. What we do know is that Jesus said that it will look like abundant life. And sometimes in the American church, we think that that's just all roses. Well, abundant life means abundant life. That means abundant hardships, abundant difficulties, abundant joys. But it means all of it. And ultimately, ultimately resurrection life, right? Where we will experience the fullness of abundant life without any of the detractors. We're to be of good cheer because Jesus has overcome the world. 
where is our treasure? Where is our treasure? God had rescued me from a terrible pit. The one my enemies had thrown me, God had and he still has continued to orchestrate so many points of provision and kindness and care for me. All of that good was being swallowed up from what started out as a small seed of envy towards my friend. Band, you guys actually can join me, join me back up here as I knock over stuff. <clears throat> there you go. This morning, listen, if you're struggling with envy, you're wrestling with resentment or hopelessness or even contempt for yourself or others, God wants to set you free. That's a prison. He wants to kick the door open. He's not frustrated with you. He's not frustrated with you. He doesn't get tired. Man, thank God, he does not get tired. <laughs> the most famous story, this famous story that Jesus ever told, mirrors this passage today in some really important ways. It's about a father who seems to be playing favorites between two sons. Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. I get ribbed all the time for talking about this, but I'm going to talk about it again. This story is so rich, it's so beautiful, and it's absolutely tailor-made for this particular instance of dealing, of dealing with envy. The prodigal, the prodigal son and the older prodigal as well. The father had welcomed home, for those of you who don't know the story, but for those of you who do, I'll remind you of some things. This father has welcomed home this younger son who had spent all of his money, and he threw him a party. He rescued him on the edge of the village. He brought him in, reinstated him as a, as, as a son, and threw a party to celebrate. Now, the older son, the older son was out in the field, as was his custom, faithfully working. And he heard the music. And he came a little closer, and he asked the little, little servant boy, like, what's going on? I hear, I hear music. What's going on? Oh, you didn't hear. Your brother's back. Your dad, your dad killed the fat calf, the big one. He's throwing a party for him. What? Throwing a party? What? What? Indignant, the older son embarrasses, shames, and disrespects his father by not coming into the party. That was his, what he was supposed to do. He is the oldest son. He has responsibilities. And the father does the same thing to the older son that he does to the younger son. He goes out to him. He goes out to him in the same mercy, the same kindness. It's amazing. And when he does, the father comes out to his son, and this is what he gets. I have slaved for you all these years, and you have never once, never once given me even a little lamb that I could celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, this dreamer, he comes back after spending it all on who knows what, and you kill the absolute best thing we have and throw him apart? The father's response is not angry to his son. I want you to know if you're struggling with this frustration towards 
God's response to you is not frustration. He says, Jesus is telling this story. God is like this or he is not. This is the watershed moment of the entire Bible. That God is like this. He says to him, my child. He uses a word that doesn't just mean son or kid. He says, my child. Listen to this. Oh, child, you are always with me. And all I have is yours. You are always with me. And all I have is yours. Can't you see? Can't you step out of the prison and understand that I am with you and I am for you? My friends, God has an ultimate favorite. He does have an ultimate favorite. It's Jesus, his son, the beloved. And he says for us to listen to him. If you have accepted his sacrifice as a free gift for the payment of your sin, you are hidden in him. You are united with him. Jesus pursued you. He searched for you. He holds you now. God has lavished his love on you and brought you right into the very center of the relationship that he has with himself in Christ. Jesus praying for us in John chapter 17 says this. This is a prayer that God has for us. Jesus has for us, talking to his father. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, not divided into camps, favorite here, favorite there, that they might be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. So that they may be one as we are one, Father. I in them, you in me. That they may become completely one. So that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them. Even as you have loved me. The Father has loved us even as he has loved the Son. It's a great mystery how all of us can be saved corporately. Yet because of this mystery that we are brought in as individuals, that he knows your name, you have access individually to a, to a great intimacy. Each one of us can say, my daddy is so very fond of me because of this reality. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You get to be his favorite too. What have you to fear? Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.